Well, the title of today's message is How to Avoid Falling Away from God. Originally, I was going to title this How to Keep Yourself from Falling Away from God, but I thought that that would emphasize too much your efforts instead of the grace of God, and that's never what I want to do. I never want to put more, I guess, emphasis on your efforts than the grace of God. So I titled this How to Avoid Falling Away from God. And I think no matter what, as we, as we jump into Hebrews chapter 3, we need to preface this by saying, it is the grace of God that enables us to continue. It is the truth of God that is the foundation of our salvation. It's the love of God that drives us and motivates us and, and controls us and compels us to continue following Him. And, and ultimately, I, I want you to know, as with most things in life, as you follow Jesus, it's a partnership. It's, it's both and. It's God graciously granting you the strength and the ability and the the fortitude and the motivation to continue following after him. And I think this is not going to be an issue of eternal security as much because I've already addressed that in, in a previous video, which I'll link in the description below later, which you can watch on your own time. Today, I just want to jump into Hebrews 3 and let you know that there are some clear instructions in Hebrews chapter 3 about how to avoid falling away from God. In other words, how to avoid being an apostate or apostatizing, okay? So with that in mind, I'm going to answer that throughout this message, so I encourage you to stick around all the way to the end. We're just going to jump right into Hebrews chapter 3, okay? Uh, the author of Hebrews ended chapter 2 by saying, look, Jesus is our great high priest. He's so much better than we know. I mean, he represents us perfectly. He knows our condition. He knows our frailty. He knows our weakness. He's been tempted like beyond any kind of you know temptation that we'll ever face. He knows what it's like. And then chapter 3 goes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. And you go, what heavenly calling? Well, the heavenly calling he's already described all the way up to this chapter. He's talked about how, look, we, we actually have been perfected through Jesus who was perfected through suffering. We've been sanctified. Right? We've been essentially, God has crowned humanity, those who follow in, in the footsteps of Jesus, Jesus has been ultimately crowned with glory and honor, and we get to follow in his footsteps of exaltation, right? To be resurrected, to be ascended, to, to be, you know, brought to new life and a glorified body. So there's a heavenly calling. And specifically in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, I think is where you'll find the, the heavenly calling. I skipped it, but it's right here in verse 11, where he says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now watch, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So part of our heavenly calling is what is really founded upon what Jesus chooses to call us. And he calls us brothers. He calls us his family. You know, when Jesus is approached by his, his family, they send messengers while he's preaching. And then these messengers say, hey, your family's looking for you. Your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And Jesus looks at the crowds and goes, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of my father. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call us his family. We're a part of the divine family of Yahweh as the children of God. That's the heavenly calling here. He goes, you heavenly, you holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling, right? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle or the, or the first, the messenger, the one who is sent or commissioned by Yahweh himself. Of course, God in the flesh, Jesus, the divine son. He's the first apostle. He's the first officially sent perfect word of God to humanity. He's the high priest of our confession. And so the author of Hebrews opens up chapter 3, leading in from chapter 2, and he goes, I want you to understand that if you're going to live life faithfully, you need to consider Jesus. And so I'm not going to tell you what to think about the text. I'm going to draw out the point from the text. 
And I'm going to say the first thing that you need to understand about really avoiding falling away from God is that you need to daily consider Jesus and have your eyes fixed on him. And Hebrews 12 is going to tell us this. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, right? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So we should daily consider Jesus, fix our mind around Christ, grow in the knowledge of Christ. And he's going to explain what that looks like. Okay. I'm just trying to set you up to see that if you're going to faithfully follow in the footsteps of Christ, there's a daily battle to keep him as the focus of my mind, to keep him as my primary treasure and my main priority in life. Consider Jesus. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. In other words, everything we confess, it's centered around Jesus and the gospel. It's about him. Your your faith, your confession, your salvation is built on what God declares about his son and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And Jesus was faithful. He was faithful to him who appointed him. And so all throughout the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of appointment language where Christ is appointed to be our high priest. He's appointed to be the first of resurrected humanity. He's appointed to be the first and only begotten son to make way for our our sonship, right? There's a lot of appointment language in Hebrews. But what the author of Hebrews wants you to consider about the son is that he was faithful to the father who appointed him as the, as the method of salvation, as the name above all names, as the name that grants forgiveness, as the high priest that mediates a new covenant. And now he's going to compare Jesus to Moses, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. Okay. So what you're going to see now is the author is going to shift. And the book of Hebrews is emphasizing how much greater Jesus is than anything else you find in the Old Testament. Not that the two are at odds, but he's the fulfillment. He's the substance. He's the prophetic, you know, uh, entirety of what you see in the Old Testament. And namely, Moses is in focus here, okay? And it's to emphasize a point. Because remember, the way he starts off this little section is by saying, look, you share in a heavenly calling, It's beyond this world. It's beyond this life. It's into eternity. It's spiritual in nature. And it's centered around Jesus, who is the the focus of our confession. He's the high priest. He's the apostle that goes forth and is commissioned by God to bring salvation. And he was faithful. Well, how faithful was Jesus? Well, he's going to liken the faithfulness of Christ to the faithfulness of Moses. And he goes, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Now, in the time of Moses, the temple was not yet built. They did have the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And they did have the high priesthood and Levitical priesthood and all that. But I don't believe we can say that the house here refers just to the dwelling place of God among Israel. Because technically Moses, once the priesthood is established and Aaron is instituted as the high priest of that time, Moses is no longer able to go in and out of the, you know, the tabernacle as he pleases, as he sees fit. Now there's, now there's, there's order and structure and there's a system put in place where the high priest goes in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And, and it doesn't mean Moses doesn't have relationship with Yahweh, but for Moses to be faithful in God's house here, I believe refers to the house of Israel. And I'm going to show you in a minute why. Because what Jesus establishes is likened to the, old, the nation of Israel. Okay, what Jesus establishes, which is the house, is likened to what Moses was faithful in. Okay, so verse 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus has been counted or considered 
more worthy of more glory than Moses himself. And that's a statement for the ages. If you're an Old Test, if you're a first century Israelite reading this letter, and then the author tells you, yeah, Jesus is a lot better than Moses, you go, hold on. Like, you understand who you're talking about, right? Like, Moses rescued the people out of Egypt. Moses split the Red Sea. Moses struck a rock in water, you know, flowed out for the entire nation. Moses was essentially the first real, you know, head chief over the people of Israel to go and lead them. Moses is, is the representation of the law. Like, he got the law on Mount Sinai. You're, you're telling me Jesus is more and is superior and has more glory than Moses? And the author of Hebrews goes, yes, let me convince you why. And in fact, Jesus has more glory than Moses. Here's what he means. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So you look at like a, I don't know, any building. And you go, wow, that's impressive. What's even more impressive are the hands that built that. What's even more impressive is the mind that conceived that. What's even more impressive is the imagination that brought that thing to life. And the hands that actually, you know, created that thing. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is Moses is great. He was just a part of the nation of Israel. He was just a servant in God's house. Now, what Jesus says is different. He's compared to the one who builds the house, whereas Moses is just a part of the architecture. He's just a part of the, you know, the schematics. Verse 4, it says, For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now, I want you to see the subtle, you know, truth that the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. If the builder of all things is God, yet Jesus is likened to the builder of the house we now call the people of God, the New Testament church, then you're saying Jesus is God? He is saying that all throughout the book of Hebrews. But there's just a little glimpse into the deity of Christ. Back to verse 3, okay? The word for house here in the Greek actually means a household, a family, or a lineage. Uh, it can also refer to a dwelling place. And in this context, I think it's referring to both. Okay. Now, I did say that I don't think what's in main focus here is the, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting where God dwelt among his people. I do believe that is secondary, though. I don't believe that's the main focus. I do believe it's secondary, meaning when he says house, when he says, you know, uh, Moses was faithful in God's house, okay? I do believe he's talking about the people of Israel, the, the lineage of Abraham, the nation, the family of, you know, the Hebrew people. But I also believe that Moses was the one God commissioned to build the tabernacle and oversee that building process and actually be a part of instituting Aaron and, and the priesthood and, and all that, commissioning them to go and do the service of Yahweh. So I do believe that the tabernacle is in mind here, okay, the house. So Moses was faithful in the house of Israel. But what you're going to see in a minute is that the reason Jesus is greater is because Jesus establishes the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And eventually, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because he builds an even better spiritual nation and household. And Jesus has already been declared, if you go back to chapter 1, if you go back to chapter 1, and I'm going to do a little bit of New Testament jumping around for a minute. But if you go back to chapter one of Hebrews, the author says, look, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke. He declared a message to our fathers, the patriarchs, the Old Testament Israel, right? By the prophets, okay? But in these last days, so there's a contrast taking place. 
He's spoken to us by his son. So Jesus here in focus is being compared to the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is superior. He's a better word. He's the better revelation of Yahweh. In fact, he's the one that says, look, when you see me, you see the father. Okay. And the father speaks by the son whom God has appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. So Jesus is on another level than any Old Testament prophet. Jesus ain't like any typical prophet. Why? Because Jesus actually is the one who is the heir of all things. He's the one who sustains the world and, and brought the world and the universe into existence. No other prophet has that authority. No other prophet pre-exists the world. They come into existence. Jesus does not. So Jesus is the final and better message of God to humanity. The final and perfect revelation of Yahweh to his people. Okay, so we've already established that Jesus is the better prophet. He's the summation of the, of the prophetic mantle. All throughout the Old Testament, okay, all the prophets you see, Jesus is better, and he's the substance of those prophets. Where they failed, he doesn't, right? Where they fell short, Jesus does not. He's the perfect and better messenger and word and revelation of God. So we've already seen Jesus compared to the prophets. Now we're seeing Jesus compared to the one who received the law on Mount Sinai, Moses. So Elijah is essentially the one who represents the prophets. Moses represents the law. Okay, and I'm going to take you to Matthew 17 where we see the Mount of Transfiguration in a minute. But I want to take you to Deuteronomy 18 first. Just to show you what the author of Hebrews is really getting at, okay? This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18 before he dies. He says, The Lord your God to the people of Israel, He will raise up for you a prophet like me. Not like perfectly entirety, but there's parallels between Moses and Jesus. Moses is a Christ type and foreshadows Jesus in a few ways. Okay, not perfectly, but in a few ways. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. In other words, he's going to be a fellow Israelite and he's going to be a prophet like Moses. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Now go down to verse 18. I will raise up for them. This is the Lord speaking, okay? The Lord says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. He's talking to Moses. He's going, Moses, one day I'm going to raise up a perfect prophet like you from among the brothers. Not that Moses is perfect, but he's going to be a prophet, Jesus but he's going to be perfect. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's what Jesus says. Look, I only say what I, what I hear the father saying. I only do what I see the father doing. Verse 19, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require, will require it of him. In other words, God personally will hold that person accountable who rebels against the words that are put in the mouth of this prophet, namely Jesus. So Moses declared all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back, you know, when the people of Israel are in the wilderness, Moses gets, says, you know what? God told me there's a prophet coming. He's going to be better than me. He's going to be in my likeness. He's going to be from among the people of Israel, okay? He's going to carry such authority that you really, really need to listen to him. Otherwise, you're going to be held accountable and there's penalty for your rebellion, if you rebel against this prophet that's coming, Moses says, there's going to be an issue. Now, let me take you to Matthew 17. 
This is Jesus' ministry. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. He takes the three homies. And they, he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. It doesn't say what mountain, okay, but, you know, scholars speculate. And he was transfigured or transformed, which is an actual physical change in appearance. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His face shone like the sun? Like there was such radiance and brightness and glory flowing from the face of Jesus that Matthew, looking back in hindsight, goes, you know, Peter told me it was like the sun. Matthew ain't there. And his clothes became white as light. In other words, just, this is Jesus pulling back just a little bit the veil of his flesh so that they can peer into his glory. He doesn't reveal the fullness of his glory as God, but he does reveal a little bit. Which is, you're supposed to think of Moses on the mountain when he just reflects. He just reflects the, the glory of God on his face. And then he comes down and there's a veil covering his face. Jesus is different. He doesn't reflect like he's actually the substance. It's emanating from him. So Moses just reflects the glory that is not his own. Jesus comes on the mount and the glory is actually emanating from himself. And his clothes become white as light. His face shines like the sun. And watch, watch very carefully. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Okay? Moses shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, John, and starts talking to Jesus with who? Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Moses represents the law. He's the one who received the old covenant law on Mount Sinai. Elijah represents the prophets. He's one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. There's a lot of people who did some cool things as prophets. Elijah's on another level. So Elijah, just man, he's a, he's a, he's a monster. So he represents the prophets. So here we have the representation of the law and prophets, the entire Old Testament, essentially, speaking with Jesus. Peter, James, and John would have been blown away. Now, I don't know how they would recognize Moses and Elijah without having pictures from, you know, their early years. But apparently there's something about Peter, James, and John that causes them to recognize, holy bejeebers, I think that's Moses and Elijah. Okay, watch. And Peter says, Lord, Jesus, it's so good that we're here. Like, if you want, I can make three tents. We could just live here. I'll make one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while Peter is still speaking, watch. A bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, you should be thinking the cloud on Mount Sinai, the cloud that in the, in the day led the people of Israel through the wilderness and through the Red Sea and rescued them out of Egypt. The cloud always represents the presence of Yahweh, the cloud that descends on the tabernacle and then ascends when it's time for the Israelites to leave and, and start walking. The cloud always represents the presence of Yahweh. And here we have a bright cloud overshadowing them. And a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now watch, listen to him. Listen to him. This is exactly what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18. He says, there's a prophet coming in my likeness. He's going to be a lot better than me. You better listen to him. If you don't, you're screwed. You rebel against him and the words of Yahweh in his mouth, you're, you're screwed. And so God here confirming that this is my beloved son. In other words, this is the prophet Moses spoke of all the way back then. Listen to him. 
like Jesus is my son. Moses, just a servant in my house. Elijah, just a prophet I used. Jesus is my actual beloved divine son. Now, you go, why do you bring that up? Because all throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus is being declared as better, better than Moses, better than the prophets, better than anything you can find in the Old Testament. Why? Because he's the substance. He's the entirety. He's the fulfillment of those things. Moses is pointing to Jesus. Elijah pointing to Jesus. The law and the prophets waiting to be fulfilled by Jesus. Now watch, Acts chapter 3. Peter does the same thing and he references Moses. While he's speaking his fire sermon, right on the day of Pentecost, he says, hey, remember Moses said the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Remember Moses said that. Peter's bringing him back to Deuteronomy 18. Remember, God said you need to listen to him in whatever he tells you. And whatever soul, and it shall be that every soul who doesn't listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after proclaim these days. So Peter's making the connection going, the prophet, the perfect messenger and word and revelation of Yahweh has come. You really need to listen to him. You really need to trust in him for salvation. So I want to take you back to Hebrews chapter 3. Okay. When the author of Hebrews says Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, he really means it. The reason the Mount of Transfiguration takes place is so that Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church, would see that Jesus is, in fact, better than Moses and Elijah. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's the substance, the, the Messiah, the divine beloved son promised in Genesis 3. He's the one we've been waiting for. And he has way more glory than Moses. Why? Because Jesus is the one who builds the house. Moses just gets to serve in the house. And the house being, well, I'm going to show you in a minute, Verse 4, when it says, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The author of Hebrews is making a connection going, look, if God builds all things and Jesus built the house that you call the New Testament church, the family of God, if he's the one who holds it together and he's the, in the one who instituted it, he's the founder of our salvation, right? Then he really is who he said he is, God in the flesh. Now, let me take you to 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's a prophecy given to David about his future offspring, okay? Now, when you read about Old Testament prophecies, sometimes, like the Psalms, these prophecies are true of the person who's giving the prophecy or the person who's being talked about, okay? But that prophecy is more true or more appropriate to Jesus, I'll explain with 2 Samuel 7. God is talking to King David, okay? And God says, look, when your days are fulfilled, when you die and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Like he's an actual physical descendant of David. He has to come from the line of Judah. You have to be able to trace his lineage as being all the way back to David, okay? That's why Jesus is the greater David, the son of David, and really the truer David. And God says, I will establish his kingdom. Remember the builder of all things is God, Hebrews 3. Watch. He shall build a house. He shall build a house for my name. 
And all the preachers go, it's Solomon. It's Solomon. He built the temple, right? He's the one who actually followed the schematics and the blueprint given by David, his father. And he built the temple. It's Solomon. Yes, Solomon is in mind here. Solomon is in mind here. In other words, this it's not that this is not at all about Solomon. This is more about Jesus, the perfect seed of David, the perfect son of David, the one who establishes a perfect eternal kingdom in the name of David. Watch. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, technically... The, the reign of David and his children ended, right? With the institution of, uh, you know, Rome coming in and doing their dirty work and taking over. The kingdom falls. So Solomon's throne technically didn't continue forever. So this can't be talking about a temporary physical kingdom on earth. At least this current mode of the world. There has to be something better. Now, this is why this is more true of Christ. Jesus descends from David. He's the true son of David, the perfect, you know, the Messiah, the one who establishes the house and the kingdom of David and sits on the throne of David. And he actually builds um, a house for the name of Yahweh in an eternal spiritual sense. Solomon does build the physical house of God. That's great, but it gets destroyed. That house didn't continue forever. There's no temple in Jerusalem anymore. It got destroyed at, in AD 70 by Rome. So there's no more house. So this can't be only about Solomon. There has to be someone who establishes an eternal house. That's exactly what Jesus is said to do in Hebrews 3. And God establishes the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, God declares... That whoever the future descendant of David is, okay? Whoever the future descendant of David is, he's going to build an eternal house. He's going to establish the kingdom of David once and for all eternally, in a spiritual sense. And, and also, eventually, the new earth, when the new earth comes, Jesus will reign physically, like actually, okay? But here, back to Hebrews 3, it says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory Right, more glory than Moses because Jesus technically is the builder of the house. That's exactly what God declared to David, that he will build a house. But the builder of all things is God. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Jesus, however, he's faithful over God's house. Look at the difference in prepositions. I know I just brought you back to fourth grade grammar, but... A preposition is in and over, okay? Over God's house as a son. That's very different than Moses. Now I'm all like insecure about my grammar. Preposition, a word governing, usually preceding a noun, expressing relation to another word. I think I got that word correct. Yes, I think I did. Yes, I nailed it. Conjunctions are but and. I was confusing the two. So the point here is, Christ is over the house of God. Why? Because he built the house. Moses is in God's house because he didn't build the house. He's just there to serve and make sure the household, the family, the nation of Israel is in order. Okay? Jesus is different. Very, very different. So let me take you to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus himself declares that he's the greater Solomon. 
Second Samuel itself should be enough to tell you that Jesus is the greater David, the greater Solomon, the true Messiah, the one who establishes the throne of David eternally. But here's what Matthew 12, Jesus says himself. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who actually came to see Solomon in the Old Testament, she will rise up at the judgment, like on the day of judgment with this generation and condemn it. Jesus is talking about the current generation of Israel. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now watch. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus himself declares to be the greater Solomon. He institutes something greater than Solomon did. He builds a better house than Solomon did. Solomon built a physical temple. whoop de doo Like, that's great. Jesus builds a spiritual, eternal house, namely the family of God. And you go, I don't know, that's a stretch. When it says Moses was faithful in all God's house, it's actually being quoted from Numbers 12. Okay? Numbers chapter 12, verse 7 and 8, it says, you know, when Miriam and Aaron come against Moses, and they're actually like pushing against his authority and saying, he's trash. They're talking, talking garbage about him. God shows up, right? And he talks to Aaron and Miriam and Moses there too to make sure Moses knows he's got his back. And God goes, look, hear my words, Aaron and Miriam. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him. How? In a vision. I speak with him in a dream. God speaks through visions and dreams. We've established that. Not so with Moses. He's faithful in all my house. Therefore, here's how God relates to him. With Moses, I speak mouth to mouth. Like clearly. Not in riddles. He actually beholds the form of the Lord. Which is interesting because God tells Moses, no one can behold my face and live. So there's something about the form of Yahweh that Moses gets to behold. And I think it's a Christophany. A pre-incarnate Jesus actually coming to Moses, but I don't want to get into that right now. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So God himself declares, look, Moses is faithful in my house. I speak to him differently than your typical prophet. The typical prophets get a vision, get a dream, get riddles. Moses, it's really clear. It's explicit. Okay? So... Moses is on another level than your typical prophet. Now, Jesus is being compared to Moses, and he's way better. Because he's the greater Moses, the greater prophet, the, the truer, sinless prophet that establishes the house of God. Now, verse 6, it says, Christ, however, right, again, is faithful over God's house. How? As a son. Moses is just a servant. When he's serving his time, leading Israel, getting the law, Moses just functions as your typical household servant. Jesus, however, he rules, oversees the entire household family because he built that house. And he's the son that makes way for that house to even exist. And we've already talked about this in previous episodes. If you haven't already watched my three-part series on what it means that Jesus is the only begotten Son, I highly encourage you to watch that. That's been my favorite series because I learned a lot. And so go and watch that, and you'll learn really what it means that Jesus is the Son of God and how He extends sonship to us. 
But the point here is we are his house. Okay. If there's a big fat conditional if here. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, that sounds like conditional salvation. That sounds like I got to continue hoping and holding my confidence to the end or I reject or forfeit my salvation. You can take it that way. I don't believe it's saying that. Number one, Hebrews chapter one, verse two already told us Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the perfect divine beloved son who makes way for us to become children and a part of God's house. Now, let me take you to Ephesians 2. Because what the author of Hebrews here is he's, he's warning the Hebrew people. He's warning the Israelites that if they reject Jesus, they're in greater danger than those who rejected Moses. It doesn't mean they're not both condemned. It means there's a greater degree of penalty and punishment for those who reject the greatest, truest revelation of God, namely Jesus. That's why the author of Hebrews is, is making, is drawing so much from the Old Testament to emphasize the fact that Moses is inferior to Jesus. And if people were punished by rebelling against Moses, like the ground opened up, swallowed Korah and the boys, right? Or, or the Levites are commissioned to go and slay the rebellious, sexually immoral, idolatrous Israelites in the camp at the base of Mount Sinai, right? Or fire goes out or a plague breaks out or serpents break out. The point is the Old Testament has a lot to say about those who reject Moses. They died pretty quickly. And the author of Hebrews wants you to understand, I'm trying to warn you that there's an even greater threat and danger and penalty for your sin if you reject Jesus. That's why he spends quite a bit of time saying Jesus is better than Moses. He built the house. Moses didn't. Moses didn't. Now, let me take you to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And I'll show you what I mean by the fact that we are the house of God. Okay? Or right, let's go to verse 19. Paul says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens members of God's household. Okay, so as, as believers, as when we trust in Christ, we become a part of, we're grafted into the family of God. We're a part of his household. This is not just, I visited God's house for his birthday party language. This is, I belong to his family and I bear his name as his beloved child. I'm built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure joined together, grows into a holy temple. Okay, so we are the temple of God. We've established that because we're filled with the Spirit. And verse 10 tells us that as the temple, as the family of God, we are God's workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, okay? So therein lies proof that you and I are the new temple. Collectively, as the church, we're filled with the Spirit, and where God's Spirit is, that's the temple, okay? So, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? You're supposed to think of the Old Testament tabernacle or temple once Solomon builds it or once Ezra does his, does his work in the second temple. 
Either way, you're supposed to think of the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells and the Holy of Holies is where only the high priest could go on the Day of Atonement. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, so, so there's all the proof you need to see that Jesus built a greater spiritual house called the family of God. Very different than the actual temple building that got destroyed by Rome and Babylon. Okay, very different. So we are the spiritual house, the family of Yahweh. Jesus built us. He made way for us to be children. He purchased our sonship. He redeemed us, right? And he's over the house. Moses, just a servant. Like, I'm not, I'm not minimizing Moses' authority, but compared to Jesus, he's inferior. Now, what's interesting is the author of Hebrews is going to now lead into, so if Jesus is that good, okay, if Jesus is that good, we really should hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's why I said, for those that are like, how do I avoid falling away from God? Verse 1, consider Jesus. There's a daily need for the believer to consider to rehearse, to meditate on, and to recall who Jesus really is, what he's accomplished, what he's promised, what we now have because of him, and to actually grow in the knowledge of Jesus daily. If I let anything else become my greatest treasure in life, my influence, my platform, my ministry, my money, my family, my gifts, if I let and my house, my possessions, my new video game, if I let anything else slowly begin to take the place of Jesus in my heart, I will begin to wander into trouble. So the point is, this isn't a question of eternal security. I've already did a I've already done a whole two and a half hour video on eternal security. All I'm saying is one of the safeguards you can actually that God has given you to protect yourself from falling away from him. Like if you're afraid of apostatizing, if you're afraid that you're a fake, if you're afraid that one day I'm gonna reject my salvation and not go to heaven, well then just do this. Daily grow in the knowledge of Christ and keep your mind focused on him. Consider Jesus daily. Keep him your greatest treasure. Keep him your greatest love. And again, this is not your efforts sustaining you. This is the grace of God securing you, right? And he actually secures you through your faith, through your trust in the gospel. But there's actually some part, some responsibility that he gives you not to stay saved, but to just continue walking with him. God has the strength and the infinite power to keep you saved. That doesn't mean there's no responsibility on your part to respond to the gospel and walk with Jesus daily. That's why point number one is just rely on the grace of God. Like just consider Jesus. Just continue growing in the knowledge of him and his gospel and his work and his character. Like don't let anything stop you from growing in, in the knowledge of Christ and growing closer to him. Consider Jesus. Keep him the focal point of your, of your life. Keep him the focus of your attention daily, and you're good. You're good. Now we're going to get into the warning. 
Okay, this is the warning. The author of Hebrews is going to hear, quote, Psalm 95. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this. And then we're going to go to Psalm 95. And we're going to read the actual original reference in context, okay? And you're going to note there's a, there's a little bit of a difference. So as the Holy Spirit says, okay? So he just said, hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now he's going to quote Psalm 95 to reinforce that. In other words, he's saying, hey guys, Psalm 95 proves my point that you need to hold fast your confidence and hope in Jesus. Because the Spirit of God says, which is how you know Psalm 95 and the psalmist's writings are divinely authoritative scripture. Because wasn't David talking in Psalm 95 or the psalmist? Well, it's the Holy Spirit talking through David as a conduit. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. As in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness. Where your fathers put me to the test. And they saw my works for 40 years. And I was provoked. Therefore, God responds. And he's provoked with that generation. That's an, that's an anger. A righteous anger. And he said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Now, what we're going to go to is Psalm 95. And we're going to read verse 7. Bruh. Give me that Psalm 95. Verse 7, okay? So, point number one, just to clarify, just consider Jesus daily. And grow in the knowledge of him. That, that proves as a safeguard from you falling away. Number two, confidently trust in God's grace. Don't rely on your efforts. Don't rely on your obedience. Don't rely on your holiness. Don't rely on your ministry. Rely on the grace of God alone. Which doesn't mean there will be no works and no obedience and no love. The point is, those are not reasons for confidence. The only sufficient reason for eternal confidence is the grace of God. So point number two, like if you want to avoid falling away, continue trusting confidently in the grace of God and hold on to your hope in Christ. That's the whole point of Psalm 95 being quoted in context. So here we go. The psalmist says he is our God. Now that doesn't say who it is. The psalmist says he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah. Now, Hebrews didn't emphasize Meribah or Masa. Okay, same event in the wilderness. So what event is in mind when the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95? Now, I got to take you to... Exodus 17, where this originally took place. Okay, I know we're jumping around, but Psalm 95 is, is quoting Exodus or pulling from Exodus 17. So I got to take you there to read the original event. Watch. 
Because remember, this is going to reinforce everything the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 3. If you don't know the event, you'll misunderstand the quotation, you'll take it farther than he intended, you'll misinterpret his words, and you'll think you're not saved anymore, okay? Exodus 17 says, this is an account of Israel in the wilderness. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. So this is them leaving, moving on. And they camped at Rephidim. Now watch, there was no water for the people to drink. Now I really want you to keep this in mind as you navigate Hebrews chapter 3. Because if you don't remember the specific event here, you'll misinterpret the words and the quotation. And you'll miss the whole point. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses. They fought. They pushed against his authority. They complained and accused God. And they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why, why are you guys fighting with me? Why do you test the Lord? How are they testing God? By rebelling, coming against the authority of Moses, right? And accusing God of not satisfying their physical desires and needs. They're almost, you'll see the degree, how far this testing goes, okay? It's not just accusing God and blaming him, and it's making him prove himself. But the people thirsted for water, right? And the people grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So not only are they rebelling against Moses, not only are they rejecting his authority, not only are they accusing both Moses and God of not caring for them, which sounds a lot like the disciples in the boat when they wake up Jesus and go, do you not care that we're dying? And Jesus goes, my boys. Okay, so they already have believed that God is out to kill them. So Moses cries to the Lord, what the heck do I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Now Moses is not exaggerating. Because all throughout the, the history of the wilderness wanderings, they actually do several times intend to kill Moses. They want him out of the way. They want to go back to Egypt. They don't want Yahweh. They want their false gods. They want their self-imagined gods. They don't want Moses. So they're actually likely ready to kill him, actually. And the Lord said, pass on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff that you struck the Nile with and go. Now I gotta stop and say there were 10 plagues, 10, 10 wonders in Egypt that God did through Moses and Aaron and the staff. Why here does God recall only one sign that when Moses struck the Nile, it turned to blood, and then they, the people of Egypt couldn't drink from the, the water anymore, and it was polluted, right? The pollution of water. Why does God reference that? Of, of all the signs and wonders that he could have referenced, why does he reference the Nile? When Moses struck it, turned to blood, couldn't bathe, couldn't drink, they were rendered waterless. I think you'll see in a minute. Because not only does God have the ability to take away life-giving water, he has the, the ability to give life-giving water, which is exactly why Jesus says, you know, he's the well, he's the true source of living water, and he gives us 
wells of living water so that we become sources of living water to others. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. This is God speaking. He says, Moses, I'm going to stand with you on the rock at Horeb. First Corinthians tells us the rock is symbolic of Jesus. And you shall strike the rock just as Jesus was struck and water poured out of his side and his blood was poured out onto the ground to satisfy the just penalty for sin. Moses strikes the rock and water comes out of it. This is what God says. Water will come out of it when you strike the rock and the people will drink. That's why Jesus is compared to the rock here. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Let me take some water because I'm getting ahead of myself. And then Moses brings water out from the rock. He gives enough water for the entire nation of Israel, just as Jesus' blood was spilled so that anyone throughout human history, anywhere on the planet, could have salvation. He atoned for the sins of humanity. He was sufficient enough. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Now watch. They tested the Lord. That's why he named it Massa or Meribah. Here's how they tested the Lord. Is the Lord really among us or not? Is the Lord really among us or not? That doesn't sound like a people that trusts in the Lord, that submits to the authority of God through Moses. That that doesn't sound like a bunch of people that have actually given their allegiance over to Yahweh. Because it happens time and time again. And the author of Hebrews is going to reference the people of Israel quite a bit to let you know the specific group of people he has in mind when he's warning. And I'm going to tell you up front, the author of Hebrews is not warning Christians to work hard to not lose their salvation. The author of Hebrews is talking to unbelieving Jewish people. And I know that's the fact in chapter 3. Because of what he's about to say. Now, Psalm 95. I'm just going to go on and keep reading. He references Meribah, where that rebellious event took place. Now, remember, the people of Israel said, is the Lord really among us? In other words, prove you're really with us. Are you freaking kidding me? Like the 10 signs weren't enough? Are you kidding me? Like splitting the Red Sea wasn't enough? Conquering Egypt and their gods wasn't enough? Feeding you manna from heaven wasn't enough? Like, how far does God have to go before you really believe he's in your midst? And so the author of the psalm right here is saying, look, if you hear the voice of God, the word of the Lord, don't harden your hearts like the people of Israel when Moses had to bring water out of a rock. Apparently, the people there are hardening their hearts, right? As on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, So the Israelites, unbelieving Israelites there, are putting God to the test. They're hardening their hearts. They're rejecting the authority of God and Moses. And they put God to the proof, even though they had already seen his works. They weren't without evidence. For 40 years, God says, I loathed. That's a strong word of, uh, what's it called, when you're uh, very displeased. Very displeased. He loathed that generation. And said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. Now watch the description of the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel right here are going to be the model of unbelief 
for Hebrews chapter 3. In other words, whoever the author of Hebrews is addressing in chapter 3, he's saying, don't be like the people of Israel in Exodus 17. Well, what were they like? They rejected the authority of Moses. They intended to kill him and just go back to Egypt. They put God to the test and really didn't believe in his authority and his presence among them, right? And God was against them. And they were a people who went astray in their heart. Their heart was not for the ways of Yahweh. They have not known my ways, God says. Okay, have not. It doesn't say they stopped knowing his ways. They have not, which means to never know. They never knew his ways. And therefore, God swears in his wrath, they're not going to enter my rest. Now, we go back to Hebrews chapter 3. And the author of Hebrews says, be very careful. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What kind of people does the author of Hebrews have in mind? The people that never knew the ways of God, that always went astray in their hearts in rebellion, provoked God to righteous wrath, hardened their hearts, tested God, put him to the test continually, never believed that he was really in their midst or he was sufficient, and therefore they didn't enter into the promised land. Now, does that sound like a believer who has trusted in Jesus for salvation? Rebellion, never knew the ways of God, always goes astray, completely tests God, never actually believes in the gospel and believes he's in their midst. Doesn't sound like a believer to me. So he says, take care, brothers, be careful that you don't have an evil and unbelieving heart. So here's... As we're talking through this, as we're going, hey, how do I avoid falling away from God? Number one, just consider Jesus. Number two, confidently trust in God's grace. Number three, continue. You're going to see in a minute, but exhort one another every day. My last point is continue to fellowship. Or my third to last, my second to last point is continue to fellowship with encouraging believers to prevent sin from hardening your hearts. And it's not even your heart that's in focus here. It's you helping someone else from having their heart hardened by sin. Now, we're not talking about a new regenerated heart in here. And I'm going to show you why. Okay, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I just want you to see verse 12 says, Be careful that an evil unbelieving heart doesn't actually, you know, become true of you. So again, what kind of heart is the author of Hebrews warning the people against? What is he saying? Hey, don't have this kind of heart. Well, the kind of heart that never knew the ways of God, always goes astray, unbelieving, rebellious, evil, test God, never trusts. And all of this language, weirdly enough, sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to take you there because as I was studying for this, I thought, this is too familiar and reminiscent of Matthew 7, 21. Okay. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many, Jesus says, many, will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? Do you see the problem here? They call Jesus Lord, but they don't rely on his grace. They're actually relying on their efforts and their good works. That's, that's their resume. Those are their credentials. When they stand before the living God, they start listing off all the good stuff they've done. We prophesied. We cast out demons. We did many mighty works. We thought that's what saved us. Jesus goes, I never knew you. That sounds like the people of Israel who never knew the ways of God. Depart from me. That sounds like Israel falling away from God. You workers of lawlessness. That sounds like people who go astray in their hearts. Does this not sound like the people of Israel in the wilderness that rebelled? When he says, depart from me, he's casting them away. What are they doing there? They're falling away from God and his eternal presence. They're missing out. They're falling short. Jesus goes, I never knew you. Well, God says that about the people of Israel in Hebrews chapter 3. They never knew the ways of God. You workers of lawlessness. They always go astray in their hearts. They didn't do the will of the Father. They trusted in their efforts and obedience and works, and that is very dangerous. To add Jesus to your resume. No, Jesus is my resume. Like, He is my confidence. His grace is my hope. It is my foundation. So I want to take you here. I think when he says, look, be careful, brothers. Brothers doesn't have to imply Christian. Because brothers is used of the Israelite people. He's just talking to fellow Hebrews. That's why it's my... I don't want to get into that, actually. I just think Paul wrote Hebrews. And brothers here just refers to fellow Israelites. That's how the word brothers or, you know, fellow brothers and sisters is used all throughout the Bible. It doesn't have to imply believers. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. And I think falling away here is defined. And in other words, if you're going, oh, crap, what does it mean to fall away? I think if we look at Old Testament Israel, here's what it means to fall away. The rebellious Israelites experienced falling away when they fell short of the promised land. They shall not enter my rest. Okay? And they didn't enter into his rest. Why? Well, we're going to see because of unbelief at the end of verse 19. Why didn't they enter? Because of unbelief. So what's the main thing the author of Hebrews is warning us against? It's, it's right here. If I could all caps it, I would. Unbelief. Unbelief. It's the main thing. Now, sin can harden me in a posture of unbelief. That's why he's saying, don't let sin harden your heart. He's going to get to that in a minute. But the point is, falling away is not something we have to exegetically make up on our own. It's right here in the text. The people of Israel fell away. They fell short of the promised land. They didn't enter into rest. Especially in verse 17, you're going to see what it's, 
what it means. They, they fell in the wilderness. They died. So falling away will define a little more clearly in a minute. But for now, we need to establish what does it mean to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Because he goes, look, instead of letting an evil, unbelieving heart cause you to fall away from God, and a lot of people will say fall away here means you were a Christian at one time. I don't believe that at all. Okay. I think falling away here is you falling short of the eternal promised land. I'm going to say that again. Falling away here, if I could define it, I think contextually and at the other passages, okay. Um, he says, don't let the evil unbelieving heart lead you to fall away from the living God. Falling away just means to fall short of the eternal promised land God has for you. Just like Israel fell short of the actual physical promised land. Now, someone in the chat I got to respond to, they said, uh, no disrespect, Jesus is talking about judgment day. Absolutely. I never said he wasn't. Uh, when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. 100%. I, I never said he wasn't. I was saying the people standing before Jesus on judgment day are very similar to the people in Hebrews 3 that the author of saying, don't be like. Okay, so I'm not saying it's not about judgment day. I'm saying it's very similar language. Um, and so this is, I think, falling away here also has in mind judgment day. But let me take you, okay? Because when he says, look, exhort one another every day. Every day. As long as it's called today. What does that, what does that imply? It means you're in communion with believers. Like exhorting one another daily means like I have relationship with other believers. I'm in fellowship with other believers. It doesn't mean I'm going to church every day. Okay, this, don't think Sunday service when you hear gather. Don't think Sunday service when you hear exhort one another. Think just have daily relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's all it means. So exhort one another as long as it is called today, like while you have the chance, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So... What does it mean to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? It means to allow an evil, unbelieving heart to persist in you. He's telling the Hebrew people, the Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel, because remember, this is literally a letter to the Hebrews. I don't know why people assume it. It's only a believing group of Hebrews. It's not at all implied. Okay, he's talking to both believing and unbelieving Hebrew people. Whoever gets this letter... Because letters made their round in the first century. You would make copies, you'd pass it around, you'd keep a copy for yourself. So these letters got passed around. The way you pass around your, your phone number. <laughs> okay, he's saying, don't let there be an evil unbelieving heart in you. He's not saying, don't let your heart of faith turn into an evil unbelieving heart. He's saying, don't let there be an evil unbelieving heart in, your, in you. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Those are two synonymous ideas. Okay, two synonymous ideas. To be hardened by sin as deceitful as it is, is to allow an evil, unbelieving heart to persist in you. Uh, so let me take you to Hebrews chapter 8. We know we shouldn't have an evil, unbelieving heart that always goes astray and never knows the ways of God. Okay, we know that. So what kind of heart should we have? Because remember, the kind of evil, unbelieving heart that's hardened by sin is the heart that always goes astray, never knows the ways of God, misses out on rest because of unbelief, okay? 
and puts God to the test. I don't know why people want this to be about only believers here. Um, if you want to believe that, that's fine. Again, he's talking to Jewish people. The Hebrews are fellow brothers and sisters. So Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. The question is, so I don't want an evil, unbelieving heart that always goes astray and never knows the ways of God. How do I not have that kind of heart? Well, have a different kind of heart. Well, I don't know what that means. Good thing Hebrews 8 exists, okay? This is the author of Hebrews talking about the difference in covenants. So why does God establish a new covenant? Well, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. He's quoting Jeremiah 31 here. Behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant. Now, hold on. Not like the covenant. If you have a Bible open, circle the bejeebers out of that phrase or that little sentence. Not like the covenant. Not like the covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So God's saying, look, there's a day coming in Jeremiah 31 when he's going to establish a new covenant that is not like the old covenant. Now, before you decide how the two are different, I would say, let the author of Hebrews explain to you how they're different. Let him distinguish between the two. Okay, God's going to say, not like the covenant I made when I brought them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them. This is the covenant I will make. So what's the issue with the old? They didn't continue in it. So whatever this is, there's going to be something different in the new covenant. In other words, I'm going to let the author of Hebrews go on. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. What? I'll write them on their hearts. What's the underlying assumption there? That Apart from God doing this in the new covenant through regeneration, a human being doesn't by default have God's law on their mind. God's law isn't written on their heart by default automatically because that comes with the new covenant. That's a part of being included into the people of God. Like this is unique to being a child of God. He's going to write the laws, his laws on their minds and his laws on their hearts. And he will be their God, he says. And he says, they shall be my people. They won't teach each one his neighbor. Each one his neighbor saying, know the Lord. As if they're like, know the Lord. Because you don't know him without me telling you to know him. That won't happen. They will all know me. From the least to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Hmm. Let me ask you something real quick for those who don't believe in eternal security. If God promises when you believe in my son, like at that very second, I decide to never remember your sins again. Wouldn't God be violating this promise or selling himself short if indeed we could go from a state of being saved 
to a state of rejecting our salvation and now we're under God's wrath again, wouldn't that mean God remembers our sins again? When he, in fact, leaves no open opportunity for sin to be remembered for anyone who's in Christ, doesn't it sound like God goes, hey, once you're in my son and you believe, I'm going to be merciful towards you. And there's going to be no opportunity for me to remember your sins anymore. I'm going to choose to, dis to completely not hold them against you anymore. This promise would be null and void if, in fact, you could reject your salvation and walk away from Christ after being saved and a child of God. Like, if you could go back to your old nature and old self, this promise is null and void. He says, I'll remember their sins no more. That means indefinitely. There's, there's no point in the future where he'll remember our sins. Now, the distinction between the old and the new covenant needs to be clarified here. Because he says, look, I won't make a new covenant like the old one. Well, in what way is it different? Well, they didn't continue in my covenant. So whatever God's going to fix with the new, it's going to be about this. It's going to be about this issue. That the Israelites did not, could not, would not, whatever you want to call it. I wouldn't say could not, but did not or would not continue in his covenant. There was an issue there. And the issue is them. That's why God fixes us. That's why he gives us a new nature and a new heart and a new mind. This is the covenant. So the issue is they didn't continue. So God shows no concern. The new covenant is different. God's actually going to put his laws on our minds and hearts. That way we don't have to teach one another and like, you don't know Christ or let's, let's just say you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. And it's like, well, you might fall away from God and, and be unsaved if I don't, if I don't keep you in the faith. Uh, none of that. Like each one will know the Lord. They can all know me now from the least of them to the greatest through the spirit, having a new nature. There's going to be a new form of relating to Yahweh and God remembers their sins no more. Now, I got to pull out my Bible for this because I wrote it down a certain way that I want to read. Okay. I really want you to see uh, the, the author of Hebrews is answering the question of in what way specifically is the new covenant different than the old? Well, God doesn't remember our sins. He hold, doesn't hold them against us anymore. And he promises to never do so. Whereas in the old covenant, he actually showed no concern for them because they didn't continue in his covenant. Number two, they didn't continue in his covenant. So whatever the new covenant is going to be about, the new agreement is, we will continue. Okay, I wrote it down like this. In what way is the new covenant not like the old one? In the old one, you could decide to not continue in, you know, the ways of God. In the new covenant, you won't do that. Because you have a new heart. Because you have a new mind. Because you have a new nature. Why do you think God gives you a completely new identity, nature, standing, heart, mind? His laws are on your heart and mind now. Why do you think he does that? It's precisely because the old covenant allowed for people to actually not continue in it. Whereas the new, like you are guaranteed to continue in it if you really belong to him. And I know that pisses people off because they're going, well, how do you make sense of this guy falling away? And how do you make sense of her? And how do you, and it's like, well, hold on, Charlie. 
Does God say he'll remember your sins no more? Yeah. Does that mean he will ever decide to remember your sins and hold them against you again? Depending on your answer, you have eternal security or you don't. I would say God being merciful towards us, remembering our sins no more, leaves no, it's not open-ended. It's not like, well, God might, you know, bring them back if he never will hold them against us again. There, that ends the eternal security debate. It ends it. It's done. We don't need to continue asking. I don't know why. I have such a hard time people believing that. Like, because I want people to be confident. So the point is, I only brought that up because the author of Hebrews is saying, don't have an evil unbelieving heart. Well, what other option is there? Have a new heart. Exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the question is, who can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin to have a continual evil unbelieving heart? The answer is, ding, 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 ding. People who are like those Old Testament Israelites who persisted in unbelief, continued in rebellion, hardened their own hearts like Pharaoh, put God to the test, never believed, always went astray, never knew the ways of God. You know what believers are? We are the counter opposite of that. We know the ways of God. We don't go astray in our hearts. It doesn't mean we never sin and we never fall. It means our lives the path we're living is majority being led by Christ. We have, a, we have a holy conviction of sin. We have a desire to live for God. We have a fear of the Lord on our life. We have a desire to know him. Of course, these things vary with each person. It, that's why it's called fruit, because every tree is going to bear different levels of fruit in different degrees at different times. The point is, the kind of heart he's saying not to have is an evil, unbelieving heart. Do you believe in the gospel? You don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. You're not in danger of having your heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because what sin is solidifying and hardening is the already existing condition of unbelief. Do you get that? This is not the author of Hebrews saying, be careful, Christians. If you sin too much, you might become hardened. But I have a new heart. I have a new mind and a new nature that won't persist in and live in sin anymore. This is talking about sin hardening the evil unbelieving heart that persists in unbelief. I don't know why we overcomplicate this. Don't get it. The last point today, if I haven't already spelled it out, Number one, consider Jesus. Number two, confidently trust in his grace. Number three, continue in fellowship with other believers. Encourage one another. Why do you think he says that? Look, exhort one another every day. Like you might have an unbeliever in your church congregation. And that person might be aware of their false salvation, or they might know that they're most definitely not a Christian and they are completely conscious and aware of that, okay? Regardless of where they stand or why they stand that way, the point is there is a chance there's a higher likelihood 
that they will come out of unbelief and come out of the hardness of sin the more they fellowship with believers that encourage them in the truth, encourage them in the gospel, encourage them in reminding them who Christ is and what he's done, the more they're in that and around that, it could actually soften their heart to no longer be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, do you see it? The reason sin is deceitful is because it's deceiving you into unbelief or to continue in that unbelief. If I already know the truth, sin can't deceive me out of that belief. Now it can deceive me into thinking that I can have instant gratification and if this will make me happy and I just need to go here again, even though I've, I know this is going to leave me you know, dead and dry in the end. Sin can deceive me into giving into sin. But sin can't deceive me into abandoning Yahweh and rejecting the gospel because of the nature of the new freaking covenant. The new covenant functions so differently than the old. God has removed the opportunity for you to not continue in belief. You will continue. That's the point. You have a heart by the Spirit of God. You have a nature that will continue. For we've come to share in Christ. If, there's that if statement again. If we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, no, look, look at what verse 14 is not saying. Okay? Verse 14 is not saying, if you hold fast to the end, you won't lose your salvation. That's not what it says. It says, we've come to share in Christ. There's the, there's the thing. And here's the proof. If you hold your confidence to the end. How do you know you've come to share in Christ? Uh, or back to verse 1. You who share in a heavenly calling, right? How do we know we've come to share in this heavenly calling in Christ? Well, do you continue believing and hoping and trusting in the grace and the gospel of Jesus all the way to the end? There you go. Well, then we can never know for sure. No, 1 John makes it very clear at the end of his book. You can know you have eternal life. You don't have to wait to see how it works out. What he's saying is the fruit of your sharing in Christ is you will continue believing. You will abide. You will continue trusting. You will believe and rely on the grace of God all the way to the end. And you won't abandon the gospel. Look at verse 15. As it is said today, look, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Who's he warning? People that have not committed to or believed in what God has declared about his son. God has spoken through his son from heaven. These people he's warning, they have yet to commit their allegiance and loyalty to the message about Christ. They're not there yet. There's potential for them to continue hardening their hearts just like in the rebellion. What kind of rebellion is in mind here? Again, continuing to harden your heart, never knowing the ways of God, always going astray. That doesn't sound like someone who used to be a Christian. Otherwise, it would say, uh, you know, you used to know my ways or you, you used to follow me, but now you go astray. No, they always go astray. That's an absolute word. They, they don't know. They have not known my ways. They can be translated. They've never known my ways. That's an absolute Absolute statement. So verse 16. 
What does it mean to harden our hearts? That's the question here. Because if the last point is, hey, here's how you don't fall away from God. Don't harden your hearts. All that means is don't persist in unbelief. The Pharisees and the religious leaders who looked at Jesus casting out a demon and said, he's just doing that by the power of the devil. They were in a persistent unbelief, what he calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin is unbelief, rejection of the gospel. So verse 16 perfectly captures what it means to harden your heart. Okay. Who were those who heard? Heard what? The message from Moses, the law of God, and yet still chose to rebel. Wasn't it those who left Egypt led by Moses? So what does it mean to harden your heart? It means to hear the message of Jesus, which is likened to and better than the message of Moses. It's to hear the message of Jesus and choose to rebel and not commit to that in allegiance and loyalty. That's what faith is. Michael Heiser is nailing it when he says faith defined is believing loyalty. It's believing loyalty. Wasn't it with those who, look at, with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? In other words, they died. They fell short of the promised land. They didn't get to go in because of unbelief. To whom did God swear that they wouldn't enter into his rest? Wasn't it to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So the question is, who are the kind of people the author of Hebrews is telling you not to be like? Those who heard and still rebelled in verse 16. Those who were led by Moses and trusted in Moses rather than Yahweh who led Moses. In other words, just because you have Moses, just because you know Moses personally, just because you know the old covenant and the laws, and you were personally led out of Egypt by Moses, doesn't mean you're eternally secure and you're actually right with God. Just because you're a pastor's son doesn't mean you're right with God. Just because you were born on the altar and your father and your great-grandfather and your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather from the, from the 1600s were all pastors doesn't mean you're right with God. So these people heard the message and still rebelled. They were led by Moses himself. They provoked God for 40 years. They sinned and they died in the wilderness. They did not enter into God's rest. They were persistently disobedient. They didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief. Does that sound like a Christian who rejected their salvation? No. This sounds like someone who continually persists in unbelief. Maybe because their love of sin, well, usually because the love of sin. And that sin that they love hardens their heart even more to persist in unbelief. In other words, it solidifies them in a place of persistent unbelief. And so they'll hear the message and continue to rebel because they love their sin. They'll provoke God with their life. They'll end up falling short of the promised land. They'll stand before the living God, give an account of their life, and they won't get into heaven. They won't get into the kingdom because they chose not to believe. This is not talking about people who used to believe or at one point did believe. This is talking about people who have never believed. 
They're persistently disobedient. They fall short. That's why chapter 4 is going to be all about the promised land of Israel versus the eternal spiritual promised land of heaven and new creation. This is not about believers rejecting their salvation and walking away. This is, hey, here's what you can do today, boys and girls. Consider Jesus daily. Grow in the knowledge of him. Confidently rely on God's grace and hope in Christ, not your performance, not your efforts, not your good works, not your obedience, and continue to fellowship with encouraging believers to prevent sin from hardening their hearts and possibly your heart. Because apparently there are people who are deceived and they think they're saved when they're not. Because maybe they believed a false gospel. Maybe they heard an incomplete gospel. Maybe they heard the right gospel, but they didn't really believe. They just added Jesus to their life of sin. So one of the safeguards God gives us as a blessing to avoid falling away when we stand before him and being rejected is fellowship and community and church gatherings. You can do all the works you want. They're never a reason for confidence. They're never a reason for hope. They're never the reason you're getting into the kingdom. The grace of God is. And then the last point is don't harden your hearts in rebellion to God. Don't be the persistently hard-hearted, well, I love sin so much, I can't give it up, and I don't really want God, I just want heaven. Bro, give it up. Give it up. Stop believing that you can forfeit your salvation and reject it. For those of you that don't believe in eternal security, like go watch my two and a half hour video. Unless you want to continue, you know, believing a lie, go watch my video on why eternal security is more than like it's biblical on every page of scripture. But look, if if you're afraid of being proved wrong and you want to cling to your traditions and you'd rather not believe the truth, that's fine. Because there are people in the chat that are like, oh, you can forfeit your salvation. You can reject it. You can walk away. If you're not open to being wrong, that's probably an indication. It might be an indication you know you're wrong. Eternal security is true. So I'm going to go and encourage you guys, go to my YouTube channel, watch my video on eternal security. Just, just, just search Jason Camacho, eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Or above reproach ministry, once saved, always saved. Eternal security. I, 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 I'm not sorry, actually, for losing my mind today. I'm not sorry. Because I'm just tired of people walking with their head down, knees weak, not sure if they're saved, not sure if they outsend the grace of God or they stop believing. And there's no confidence. There's no serving God and enjoying relationship with Him because they're so afraid that tomorrow God might abandon them or they might outsend His grace. Stop it. Enough is enough. Like, do you trust in his grace or do you not? I'm going to encourage you guys to check out AboveReproachMinistry.com. This is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids, my real family. Um, this is our only source of income. So I want to show you all the free stuff we have. We have free online Bible study skills courses. We have seven that we release. We release one every single week. Where you, if you want to learn how to read the Bible, learn how to recognize keywords and trace those keywords. In other words, if you want to build and develop the skills to read the Bible, go to my website linked in my bio. Okay, You'll find these free online courses. You can find our free study devotionals we release every week with each online course. There's a free Friday workshop we do where I walk you through the keyword study. You can do it on your own to develop your Bible study skills. 
and grow in the knowledge of scripture. And you can also read these free Bible study devotionals. Uh, you can check out our podcast and our YouTube channel. You can check out our merch store, uh, Above Reproach Apparel, Christ-centered clothing right here. All the proceeds go into this free content. Look, we you can order my book here. The podcast is free. The YouTube channel is free. The trainings are free. The online study courses are free. The study devotionals are free. The only thing that costs money is my book, which it costs money for publishing. So look, I encourage you guys to go to my website, click the link in my bio, and you'll see all this stuff. Jump on the Discord community. Hit me up on Instagram, like jump in the Discord community. If I'm going to emphasize anything, join the Discord community. Um, it's linked in the YouTube description below, as well as in my TikTok profile. You can join our weekly Zoom calls. Today, we're not having a Zoom call because it's 4th of July. And uh, I'm going to go enjoy my family. And I encourage you guys to do the same. And then um, you can also support this ministry by giving one time through PayPal, through Cash App, through Venmo, or becoming a monthly supporter through Patreon. And when you become a monthly supporter through Patreon, you get exclusive access to my teaching notes, my sermon material. You get discount codes on, on our church merch. You get a copy of my book. You can read the testimonials to see what God is doing here. And um, that is it for today, guys. So I encourage you guys to go and watch this again. If you're not convinced, watch my video on eternal security. I'm sweating like a mug up in here. And um, no Zoom call today. I apologize because it's 4th of July. So go and enjoy your families, guys. And I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus.